Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason. I'm from California, and I am now in beautiful Beijing. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Today, we have a special guest. David W. Ferguson was born in Scotland. He graduated with honors in law from the University of Edinburgh. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. David came to China in 2006 and moved to Beijing in 2008, has written several original books on contemporary China for the foreign language press, foreign languages press, published in Chinese and English. The most recent of these is China's Rural Revitalization, the Gansu Experience, which we have with us, published in English for French and Chinese in June 2022. He is regularly interviewed on radio and television concerning contemporary issues in China and conducts lectures, seminars, and training sessions at such venues as distinguished universities, as well as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Agriculture, the PLA, the Translators Association of China, and Qingdao Foreign Affairs Office. In July 2021, he was appointed Distinguished Research Fellow of the Academy of Contemporary China and World Studies. In September 2021, he was awarded the Chinese Government Friendship Award. Welcome to the bridge, David Ferguson. Thank you very much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. I scarcely recognize myself after that big intro. I hope <laughs> I hope I can live up to it. Uh-oh, you better start dancing right away. Well, you know, I think we usually like to start with, why did you come to China? So could you tell us your coming to China story? Yes, it's actually quite an interesting story. Uh, back uh, prior to 2006, from about 2003, I was working King in Manchester mm. with one of my brothers. And we had a media production company. Mm-hmm. And we were actually involved in putting video on CDs, not DVDs, CDs. Wow. When that I first didn't even know became, that could be done. Yeah, yeah. So we were at the cutting edge of uh, forefront of technology, mm. putting our videos on CDs. And we used to make commercial stuff uh, for commercial clients, for um, public broadcasting. Uh, and we also had a client in Manchester United TV, mm. our biggest client. They used to commission us to make documentaries and TV programs. Wow. So you only get to, to interview David Ferguson, but I actually got to interview David Beckham. Wow. Yeah. it's impressive. So we had this company um, and uh, we had a job to do in a town called Hull, which is on the northeast of England. And Hull's a small town, but the university there was very progressive and they were one of the first universities to target Chinese uh, market. Mm. So I had a, we had a short job to do there uh, one afternoon and I had an old friend from my days as a management consultant who I hadn't seen for a long time. And I knew that he was off on some project somewhere, but I knew his mum as well. So I decided that after we'd done our job, I would drop in and say hi to mm-hmm. mum. So we went along, we rang the bell, but it wasn't his mother who answered the door. It was this beautiful young Chinese girl. Mm. <laughs> and she had become a friend of the family because she was studying in Hull. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about it was she just popped in to say hi. And if I hadn't gone 10 minutes earlier or 10 minutes later, I would never have encountered this person wow. who went on to become 
my wife. Wow. And it's actually, it doesn't happen that often in your life. Mm. That there's something happens that sends you off on a completely different tangent. Mm-hmm. Because if I'd never met Mochin, I mm-hmm. would never have had any reason to come to China. And I don't know what I would have been doing with my life, but I wouldn't have been here. None of the things that have happened over the past almost 20 years now mm-hmm. would have happened. And as I say, that doesn't actually happen that often in your life. So I met Mochwin through a friend in Hull mm-hmm. and we got together. And in 2006, we were looking for new opportunities mm-hmm. and China was the land of opportunity. So we decided to make our way here and see what we could find. So what, where was she originally from in China? She's from Jilin. She's a Dongbeiran. Wow. So, so did you move there first? Yeah, we went to Jilin first. So I'm actually an Ibar Dongbeiran. <laughs> we originally came to Jilin when we first came to uh, China mm-hmm. because my wife comes from Jilin. So she is a, a Dongbeiran mm-hmm. and I am Ibar Dongbeiran, means half of a Dongbei person. Dongbei is the Northeast. Yeah. So Manchuria. So you came to Beijing in 2008. Um, what happened in those two years while you were in the Northeast? Well, it was very interesting. I tried all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. Every Tell one us. of Well, every one of them was a good idea and every one of them could and should have worked, uh, but nothing really came to fruition. For example, I was a football agent. Wow. For reasons. Well, I mean, if you've interviewed David Beckham, I'm sure there's a reason. Yeah. Well, I was, yes, I was actually a qualified uh, FIFA football agent when I came to wow. China. And people were starting to get interested in the Chinese market. Mm-hmm. But at the time, there was no money in football in China. So it was about finding a good Chinese player, taking them back to Europe mm. so that the club could then cash in on the Chinese wow. market. Yeah. And I had a couple of things that almost came off, but something was always getting in the way. A manager got sacked or they, something always happened or somebody got injured. So it didn't, it wasn't quite working out and I eventually abandoned it. It was the worst financial decision I ever made in my life. Wow. Because of course, 15 years late, Chinese football was awash with money and mm. they were spending $50 million on a player. And wow. if I had just stuck in, I would have been Mr. China. <laughs> I would have been Mr. China for the football world. I could speak French. I could speak German. I could speak Italian. I could speak English. Would have been able to work with any of the top European clubs. I actually didn't know you were multilingual like that. Oh, until right. Just now. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I traveled, and, I traveled a lot when I was young. So that was one of the things I did. I, I did a fair amount of work with the FDI. Mm-hmm. Foreign direct investment yeah. to Zilin. To so I worked as a consultant. I looked at various business opportunities in terms of import export. So I did a lot of different things, any one of which could and should have worked mm. and maybe would have worked for somebody, some different character, but none of them were quite coming off. And it became apparent to me that I needed to find a proper job. Mm. Like, so instead of booking yourself as your own business, you went to work for somewhere else. That's right. Yeah. And what actually happened was my wife found an advert for a job as a journalist editor with China Org, which is the uh, web-based news and information provider in China International Communications Group. Mm. And they were looking for um, a journalist and editor. I did have some background in the media, having run a media production company mm. with my brother. And the the job opportunity came up around about early 2008, mm-hmm. March 2008. What actually happened was in March 2008, there was serious unrest in Tibet. Mm. And there was little doubt in my mind at the time and no doubt in my mind now that this was orchestrated mm-hmm. in a deliberate attempt to jeopardise the 2008 Summer Olympics. Mm. But I saw in great detail what mm-hmm. was happening in the streets of Tibet through 
a lot of collected video, different videos, phone videos, uh, CCTV, closed circuit TV videos, television videos. Mm -hmm. And coming from a background, having made videos, I could see that what I was seeing was not staged and it wasn't fake. I knew Mm -hmm. that that was what was really happening. Mm -hmm. One journalist from The Economist, uh, James, his name's not James Reynolds, that was the BBC guy, but I always forget his name. He was in Lhasa Mm -hmm. the day... The trouble started mm-hmm. and he saw what happened and his first post in Tibet told the truth. Mm-hmm. Now, within a week, within days, the whole story had been transformed from unrest and riots in Tibet to police brutality mm. in Tibet. And this guy's story, that first story that he posted, just got lost. It's still there. You can still read. You can still read what mm-hmm. he said was happening. But I was looking at this account of what was happening in Tibet in the Western media that bore no resemblance Mm -hmm. to what I knew had really been going on. Yeah. And I actually got quite angry about, I mean, my wife's country is China. And China has never been anything but hospitable to me. When my wife goes to Scotland, she doesn't spend a life telling me about all the things that are wrong with Scotland. <laughs> and I think that the very least courtesy I owe her is to treat China with the same respect. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at these two completely contradictory stories, mm-hmm. one from the Western media that bore no resemblance to reality and one from the Chinese media. And it actually made me decide. If this is what the Western media are doing in China, then I will go and try to tell a more honest story. Mm. I mean, I'd never really been involved in the political side up to then Mm -hmm. because I'd been busy trying to earn a living. Mm. But that was really the tipping point that made me decide to take the job with China Org as a journalist and as an editor. So I actually became, I started work with China Org at the end of April 2008. Well, you remember very well. I I rarely remember the exact Well, I can actually happened. remember the exact 25 date. years ago. I'm a very keen golfer. <laughs> mm. And there used to be an important competition in China, which was the Volvo China Open. Mm. And it just so happened that the Volvo China Open was on so your the week linked. I went down to China Org. Um, and they... I was very keen on golf. I, mm-hmm. I knew they wouldn't have a golf correspondent. So I said to them, can I go <laughs> cover the Volvo China Open Have golf you met Cyrus you? Jansen? Because he was also very into golf in Shanghai around the same time. No, I haven't met him. I'm, I possibly encountered him because I did travel. I became the China or golf correspondent and I traveled mm-hmm. around a lot. Mm-hmm. And I got to go to the, main, to the Open in the UK and some of the, the big tournaments. Mm-hmm. But the other reason I remember it very well, Jason, is because in May there was the Wenchuan earthquake. Mm-hmm. Right at the start of May. And I had been a journalist in China for two weeks by that point. And the first big job I was asked to do was to go and cover the aftermath of the earthquake. You're listening to The Bridge. Let's switch gears here a little bit. You know, it is 2023 and China, um, a lot of people argue that China is changing at China speed, which is in your book also. Um, The one that I read recently, uh, China's rural revitalization, the term China speed, which I've read in a lot of places from 2008, at least, or if you want to go back to 2006, that's okay too. How has China changed from that time to the present time? Well, there have been some huge changes, interestingly enough. I've been in Beijing since Mm. 2008, that's 15 years now. Mm. And because I'm here all the time, the incremental change Mm. doesn't actually impact on me quite so much. I don't notice it quite so much. If I think about it, I can think of major changes. Mm. But what is interesting is the changes I see in Jilin. Mm. 
Mm. We were in Zealand for two years and then we used to go back very regularly. We used to go back for the Spring Festival and the national holiday while my wife's parents were still alive. Mm -hmm. They've both sadly passed on now, Mm. so we don't have quite the same draw. But we still go back regularly. And um, we went went back, for example, in the Spring Festival. Mm. And I see massive changes in Jilin as I go back yeah, periodically. regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Jilin is a, a really nice city. I like it a lot. It's a small city. I come from Edinburgh, which is a small city, and I like small cities. I like a city that's easy to get out of. Mm. Jilin is on the Songhua River, mm-hmm. and Jilin is very close to the Songhua Lake, which is actually a man-made lake. Uh, there's, a, there's a hydroelectric dam, mm. which created Songhua Lake. Wow. Songhua Lake stretches for hundreds of kilometres up into the Changbai mountain. It's a beautiful place, so I like Jilin. But what I noticed there, for example, is that we have an apartment on the riverside, mm-hmm. and they've been building the city out along the river up towards the lake. Mm. And they always build a park along the riverside. Yeah. Uh, as they as they build their apartments and offices on the other side of the of, of the road. It's Interesting. So, they do the same thing in Wuhan. Yeah. Yeah. As as they're developing, mm-hmm. I think it's to the east. Mm-hmm. They keep building parks as the apartment buildings are built. Yeah, that's yeah, very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, they do that and they've built this park all the way. So I used to be able to run five kilometers mm. when I first arrived in Tilin. And now I can run 15, 20 kilometers wow. along <laughs> the park. And that's really great. But there's another, there's another aspect which is important. I think we'll maybe talk about it later anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's the clean air. Mm-hmm. I think we'll come back and talk about that because I think you're going to ask me a couple of questions more specifically directed at that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I really like in Tilin is there's now a ski station right beside the city. So you're into every sport. You play golf, you play yes. football, you you go skiing. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> we were that, talking about hiking before the show yeah, started. I like, that. I like that too. But what's interesting about the ski station mm-hmm. is that it's right outside the Tilin. It's called mm-hmm. uh, Songshan. And it was the old training center for the Chinese ski team. Mm. And you can see it. When I moved to Jilin, you could see it up on the hill. You could still see the the, the, slopes. the, the slopes, although it had been mothballed because they built a bigger place mm. uh, slightly further out for the Asian Winter Olympics in 2007. But I used to be curious about it. And I went up with a friend of mine and I visited the place and I said, you could reopen this. Yeah, I was just thinking you the same thing. Why mothball? It. Well, why? Yeah, you could reopen it. And what was... Actually, more interesting for me is that if you could build some summer sports, like golf courses and tennis courts, mm. then you would have a 12-month resort. And it's right beside the Songhua Lake. Don't give away all your investment ideas. Well, it's too late, Jason. <laughs> it's too late. I actually tried, and I came very close. There's a guy called Greg Norman, who's a former golfer who has a big investment company now, builds golf courses. And I approached them at one of the tournaments, and they were interested, but I never quite managed to make it click at the time. Mm. There was there was a very tight clampdown on building golf courses in China yeah, because I remember it that. had been abused. Yeah. It had been abused. But I think Jilin, they would have made an exception mm. because it was such an obvious opportunity. Mm. Anyway, it never happened. But I went back in about, I guess, maybe 2012, 13, and somebody had reopened the <laughs> resort. So you, it's because Wonka, you told someone. I think it's Wonka uh, who are actually the developers. But um, what was also interesting is my son used to go there and um, he used to practice. He's a snowboarder. 
Mm. So actually, my son is a better golfer than me and a better skier. <laughs> He's actually the sportsman. But he used to practice with another little boy mm. whose name was Sun Yimin, mm-hmm. who won the gold medal oh, wow. in the Winter Olympics. <laughs> so we've actually got a little snatch of video of these two little kids yeah. practicing on the trampoline. One is my son and the I'm other s- one is the Olympic gold medalist. And the only time I ever actually saw that one was, was this recent Winter Olympics here in Beijing. I was watching them practice on the trampoline. It's the first I'd ever even heard of that. Yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Um, can I change the topic a little bit? Absolutely, yeah. So um, you won China's Friendship Award, which is, mm. I understand it, is the highest award a foreigner can win in China. Could you tell us what led to that? And uh, well, I'd maybe been, the story associated I'd been there. in China for a long time by then. I think I was awarded it into 2021, I think. Yeah, so six, 15 years. I've been in China 15 years. I've been working in Beijing 13 Mm. years. All 13 years I've been with CICG. Mm. So I've been working as a journalist and editor and then as a book writer Mm -hmm. and editor. Um, And I think that by that point, I think the Chinese felt that I had earned the Friendship Award. One of the things that you've done is that you have done all of the copy editing. Is that the right word for it? For Xi Jinping's books. Yes, that's right. And obviously that played a big uh, role in the decision, but you're correct. I've done all four volumes of The Governance of China. Does that mean there's another one coming? Yes, uh, but (laughs) actually I'm not sure Uh whether we're allowed to say that or not. Clearly there's another one coming. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be like periodic. Yeah, they always, the only they, they always make it a big secret, but there is definitely, there will definitely be one coming shortly, but I'm not sure that we're allowed to talk about it, but we can talk about the, the four. So yes, I was the, for volume one, we shared the copy editing between myself and a colleague, Paul White, who's now passed on. Mm. Um, Paul was a very old and experienced mm. editor with the FLP, but from volumes two, three and four, I was the only copy editor. Mm. So it means that I've probably read the book more times maybe than even you have. Have you? I've only read one and four. You've only read one. How many times have you read them? The one, one time, four, one time. No, wait, one and two times. I'm sorry. Twice. Well, that's pretty yeah. good. That's pretty well. I had to read two, three, and four. I had to read at least five times well, for, during for the, the editing process. We put a lot of effort into the English version. There's a big team works on the English version. Mm. And the English version is used alongside the Chinese version for other languages, particularly Western European languages. So, for example, the French and Portuguese, they will use the English version as a reference as well as the Chinese. Yeah, when, I, when I go into uh, the bookstore in Xidan here in Beijing, mm-hmm. the first thing you see is all the different translations from yeah. all these different languages. It's quite impressive. Yeah. Well, Let- they take a lot of pride in the, um, in the production of the governance of China. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. asking me about the Friendship Award. Yeah, yeah, yes. And uh, I didn't actually finish the story because there's quite an amusing anecdote. Well, let's hear it. Uh, When I was asked, when I was invited to receive the Friendship Award, I was actually awarded it in 2021. Mm -hmm. But because because of COVID, Mm. the ceremony was postponed. And uh, they didn't actually tell the recipients in 2021 that they'd been given the award until 2022. Okay. (laughs) So we were invited to the ceremony and there were only, I think, about two dozen, two dozen, maybe 
40 recipients who were actually able to be present because mm. COVID controls were still in place. Mm-hmm. So I had a little idea. I thought for the presentation ceremony, I will wear my kilt. Yeah, I've, I have the picture. So you've seen the picture, you've seen <laughs> my kilt. Well, what happened was Premier Lee Kutsyang had a photograph with the recipients and he was busy and he was in a hurry. Now, normally he would have greeted us all individually, mm. but because of the COVID controls, he wasn't able to do that. Mm. So we were all stood up for a photo and he came hurrying in and sat in the front. Mm. We had the photo taken and then he got up and turned to face us and made a short speech. Mm. So I thought, I'm the only guy in my yeah. national dress. He's sure to notice me. And sure enough, after he'd made the speech, he had to leave quickly, but he came over to me and he said to me in English, so are you from Scotland? <laughs> so I answered in Chinese, Shodewashu Sugalanra. Yes, I'm from Scotland. So I had a conversation with Premier League Chang. It was a very short conversation, yeah, yeah. but I did have a conversation with him. I can also say I had dinner with President Xi Jinping. I'm sorry? I had dinner with really? President Well, the truth of the matter is I had dinner with 500 other people. <laughs> <laughs> I was probably at the table furthest away from President <laughs> I can honestly say I had a conversation with Premier Li Kuqiang and I had dinner. That's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah. But as an interesting little aftermath, uh, the Premier has a couple of sessions every year where he invites a group of foreign experts to a reception. And he always makes a short speech. And there are two designated foreign experts who also make a speech. Mm. And then the Premier chooses people from the audience at random to stand up and say a few impromptu words. So I'd been invited to one of these and I didn't get to talk. Hmm. But I was invited to another one after the foreign experts. He's like, get the guy with the kilt. <laughs> well, I said, I'll put my kilt on again because hmm. I'm sure Lee Katsiang will remember me from, yeah, yeah. The, from the Friendship Award. And he'll maybe ask me to speak. And it worked a treat. Strategic fashion. Absolutely. <laughs> David Ferguson. I was actually the first person chosen after the designated speaker. He looked around and he said, <laughs> That's fantastic. You're listening to The Bridge. Let's move on to your book, your most recent book, I understand, China's Rural Revitalization. I was reading this the last few days and a couple of weeks ago as well. The Gansu Experience. You traveled to Gansu and you met with people firsthand. According to the uh, preface, I guess, or the first chapter, you mentioned that you owe this to hundreds of people that you interacted with during your uh, tour. Could you tell us three or four at least different strategies that China has used to help alleviate poverty. Yeah, I think it's really important. One facet that is really important is that China understands poverty is not simply material, financial poverty. Mm. There are other aspects of poverty that are just as important. Mm -hmm. Um, Poverty of spirit, Mm -hmm. poverty of expectations being in my mind one of the most the most important and poverty of opportunity Mm -hmm. and what China has really tried to do is to make sure that the focus is not exclusively on financial issues Mm -hmm. but actually helping people up over a whole range of fields Mm -hmm. so poverty alleviation is focused on making education available Mm. a lot of work building Schools. And that's not just for kids, that's for adults as well. Yeah, Technical vocational skills. education yeah. as well. But a lot of effort has gone into education to create opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there, a lot of effort has gone into things like social welfare. Mm. I mean, China now has a complete 
healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Not they don't not a hundred percent, but it covers everyone, mm -hmm. uh, and that's really important because in the West you regularly hear comments uh, to the extent that China has no welfare. And that is just completely, completely wrong. Mm. They have a complete pension system. Mm -hmm. They have a, a healthcare system. I'm actually system I'm that covers proudly it. part of the pension system. Yeah. Looking forward to taking mm -hmm. advantage of it when I get to sixty. So these are aspects that um, that China's worked on. But as I say, to me, the most important aspect is poverty of expectation. Mm -hmm. If you live in a remote place yeah. where everyone is poor, mm -hmm. everyone is poor. If you live in a remote place where everybody has always been poor, mm. it destroys your spirit. Mm. You can't imagine anything different. And it makes it very, very difficult to get out of that poverty. Mm. And one of the things, the most important thing I think that China has done in a huge range of achievements mm -hmm. is to transform that, mm -hmm. to make sure that people now have the opportunities and having the opportunities creates expectations and people now realize that they can get themselves out of poverty through their own efforts and they can go on and build and develop on top of that through their own efforts. They don't need handouts. Mm. Now they have the spirit, they have the spirit of entrepreneurship, they have the, the belief mm -hmm. in their own ability and I think that, that is the most important aspect of all. You're listening to The Bridge. I also do want to talk about the material wealth. Mm -hmm. One of the examples that you use in the book is the creation of olive farms. Yeah. I love olives. So yeah. when I read that, I was like, I have to visit Gansu now. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I rarely see olives in China. So yeah. if they have them in Gansu, that's a reason to go there. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came to well, be? Well, that's a really interesting one because uh, China had no olive farming at all mm. um, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, and what actually happened was, I think it was the Albanian president. It was the Albanian president who sent as a gift to China a number of, I can't remember exactly how many, maybe a dozen olive trees. And uh, these were the first olive trees in China. Moving forward, as part of the poverty alleviation program, mm -hmm. one of the things that agrarian uh, agronom ag agronomists do is they look at specific areas mm. and they consider them from a perspective of agriculture and they ask themselves, what might grow well here? Mm. And that is one of the specific things they do. And they identified Longnan in Gansu mm. as an area that had the potential to grow olives. Mm. And they started building olive plantations. And the olives from Gansu, I can, I can guarantee to you, they are of excellent Quality. You mentioned there's a hundred different species of olives there. So I guess some of the olive oil that we get at the grocery store, this is where it's grown. Yeah, well, I think uh, 80 or 90 percent of China's homegrown mm. olive oil now comes from the Longnan area. What's really interesting, um, it's quite funny actually, when I first went to Longnan, I was attending a big poverty alleviation forum mm -hmm. and we had a big banquet. Mm. And of course, nowadays, Alcohol is not served in that type of government function. Mm. But there was a little glass on the table when we sat down. There was actually, there was a very small glass of red wine. Mm -hmm. And there was a little glass sitting beside it of this kind of greenish, yellowish liquid. Mm -hmm. And I thought 
it must be some kind of local bajil. Yeah. I assumed that. And what it was, in fact, was olive oil. Olive oil. And it's wow. the first So you time took a shot of olive oil. You <laughs> shot, you drew, we ate our dinner accompanied with shots of olive oil. And it's really, really good. Mm. They make this very high quality, very fragrant olive oil, mm. which is really, really pleasant to drink. Mm. So knowing that you're a fan of olives, I've still got a bottle. <laughs> I don't, I I shall, don't I sh- we no, can I'll share go to Gansu. That. I'll go to we Gansu. Can, well, you should definitely do that. Um, you know, I've always really enjoyed Malatong. And one thing I've always thought every time I go to Malatong is this would be better with olives. Mm. <laughs> so that's an opportunity for Gansu right well, there. Gansu definitely makes excellent quality olives and olive oil. In that chapter, the preceding chapter, uh, you talk about the history of cooperatives. And then you talk about some of the cooperatives that exist today Mm -hmm. to the benefit of people in the poverty alleviation campaign. Could you talk about one or two examples of how this works in real day-to-day life in China? Yeah. Um, The cooperatives have been a very, very important aspect of 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 poverty alleviation mm. and rural revitalization mm-hmm. cooperatives kind of fell out of fashion mm. after the 1950s and the attempt at full collectivization yeah. although the history of cooperative states back all the way to Rewe Ali mm. he founded Gongho yeah, yeah, yeah. We had the, Michael Crook in here last yeah, week. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, well, I know Michael very well, and he's very active he's great, in, yeah. the, in gung-ho. But uh, cooperatives have been revitalized as part of the um, poverty alleviation, rural revitalization strategy. And every village mm. now will have at least one cooperative, at least one agricultural cooperative, mm. depending on what types of activity they're involved in. For example, in Bulongo, mm-hmm. which I visited in um, in Gansu, they have a lot of sheep farming. Mm-hmm. So what they've done is they've created a collective for, mm. for lamb. So breeding the sheep, uh, rearing the sheep and, uh, and the meat from the, the sheep. I feel like some of our listeners will know what we're talking about and some of them will not because the idea can be a little abstract. So for the example of uh, an olive farm, mm-hmm. you might have 20 people who farm there, yeah. but they are all owners of the farm together yes, collectively. Yes, yes. Whatever profit it makes, they split it up yes. evenly among the, the holders. What potentially would happen, for example, is that the oil production, Mm-hmm. would be a cooperative mm-hmm. that the individual farmers will own their land they can uh, they can put the land into the cooperative in some cases they can actually use it as an investment mm-hmm. as to to buy a share in a cooperative mm. and they'll come together for example and they'll create a cooperative it's like a mortgage to produce the yeah, yeah. exactly so they'll create a corporate cooperative to produce the olive oil and the olive oil production is a collective effort mm. so they share ownership and they share costs and they share the the proceeds Wow, that, that's an impressive... Another a chapter earlier in the book, you talk about the use of tourism. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the town, but there was a particular village with 2,700 people living there. They rebuilt the town to its like historic yeah. uh, scope and then brought tourists in. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how that helped the local community? Yeah, I can't actually remember the name of that village either <laughs> because I've vill- visited so many places yeah. and I always struggle with Chinese names. But I know the place you're talking about. But tourism has played a huge part Mm. in rural revitalization because China's a huge country uh, with many beautiful rural areas and a huge variance in terms of topology. You've got everything Mm. from Mm. sandy deserts 
rainforests, to rainforests yeah. and jungles. So almost anywhere you go in China, once you get off the beaten track, you'll find beauty. Mm. And in the past, these places were very remote and they didn't have any facilities to encourage tourism. Mm. But as China has developed economically, we have a huge and growing middle class. Mm -hmm. Now, the wealthiest Chinese mm -hmm. will aspire to travel to Paris and go shopping there. <laughs> sure, absolutely. But there is a huge market below that where people just have some money now. They have leisure time. And China is an ideal place to visit. There, everywhere you go, there's history. Everywhere you go, there's geography. Mm. So there's been a big focus in terms of building a beautiful countryside is actually what they call that part of and that's part rural, of rural revitalization. revitalization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And almost everywhere, there'll be a focus on tourism now. And uh, it's, it's good business, enormous market, good opportunities for profit, good opportunities for improving accommodation. And uh, I visited a lot of places. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Yunnan, mm -hmm. in Nujiang, which is in the north, uh, mm -hmm. northwest of, of Yunnan, and one of the formerly one of the poorest counties in uh, China. Mm. And what I saw there was very similar to what you're talking about, what I saw in Gansu. Mm -hmm. Just complete transformation of the village to make it an attractive mm. place for people either to go and visit or to go and stay. Is this, is this successful? Yes. Yeah. So yes. people are coming oh, from yeah, local yeah, cities yeah, 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 to visit yeah, this. Well, the first target is the local cities. Mm. And that's a mark. Yeah. Um, you know yourself, it's a yeah, small Gu city in yeah. China has two or three million people. I'm thinking of Gubei water town here in Beijing, where it used to be nothing. Mm -hmm. I, when I went there 10 years ago, there was nothing. And people go there every weekend for trips now. There are a lot of places around Beijing where people like to travel. Beijing's close to the mountains and mm. it's easy to get up into Hebei or even in, still in Beijing mm. itself. But yeah, the, the, the promotion of tourism has been a hugely successful feature of poverty alleviation mm. and rural revitalization. And it makes a lot of sense. Mm. First of all, the target, the local city, the local urban market, mm -hmm. and that's always a healthy size. Mm -hmm. Then they start to target the um, the uh, the wider Chinese the market, the economy. national market, yeah. the one point four billion. Yeah, and they still have the potential in certain places. They yeah. still have the potential to actually create uh, to create an international. Yeah, the, I, the thing of the place I was talking about earlier in Jilin, that ski resort, the ski resort, the lake, and the bring bring in summer sports, and you have potentially an international resort. Yeah. There. It's something that they're not quite focused on yet, but they will get there. Mm, I think there's a lot of interest in coming to China. You're listening to The Bridge. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a village called Yanggudui in mm. Gansu, where some homes were previously yeah. adobe walled huts with turf roofs and low ceilings. But the Chinese government built new homes yeah. and relocated yes. the village. This is one of the more internationally well-known strategies yes. for poverty alleviation. Yes. Sometimes the United States get criticized based on this because they have so many homeless there. Um, how did this work? And have you have you talked to people who've moved into these homes? And what, how has their life been changed? Yes, I visited uh, a number of people, both in Yuan Gudue and in Bulango. 
Mm. Uh, I visited homes in both of these villages. Mm -hmm. One of the things I didn't do when I was writing the book Mm -hmm. is get a complete picture of the financial arrangement. Mm. And it was, it's just that that always happens. I had a short field trip, trying to gather as much information as possible. And it wasn't until I got back and started going through Mm. the notes, I realized I didn't get a full picture. And that's a pity because it is important and interesting, but people did talk to me about it. Mm. Um, And yeah, both of these villages and in many other villages, they have, if the housing can't be renovated mm-hmm. or is just just not suitable mm-hmm. then they will build new housing mm-hmm. and the new housing is always modern housing mm-hmm. it's always uh, it's always provided with full facilities mm-hmm. so they built basically a new housing estate mm-hmm. in Yuen and anybody whose original house traditional house yeah. wasn't suitable for renovation will have moved into one of these new houses and exactly the same in Bulango and the difference is quite enormous. I mean, I saw the traditional homes of Bulango, mm-hmm. which they've kept, the kind of folk museum. Mm, wow. Um, Bulango a is a, a Muslim area. It's the Dongchang minority, I think. Mm-hmm. And their traditional home was a mud hut mm. with a straw roof. And between the kitchen and the living area, there was a hole in the wall. And it wasn't even a door. It was just a hole in the wall. And the function of that hole in the wall was to allow the women to move between the kitchen and the living area without having to go outside where they might encounter a man. Wow. Now, that was 10 years ago. And the reason I'm talking about it goes back to one of the questions you asked earlier about the big changes. And I was talking about mindset changes Mm -hmm. because I met a Muslim family who had moved into a new house and they were actually operating it as a a homestay. Mm -hmm. And the wife... Uh, Ma Myra was a most incredibly inspiring person. Mm-hmm. She was in her 50s, I guess, maybe her 60s and probably looking a bit younger like most Chinese women do. But 10 years ago, she would have been living in this society where she was expected to stay in the house and move to and fro between mm. the hall and the wall. Now she's the head of the Women's Federation. Mm. She's full of ideas, hugely mm. entrepreneurial, She's been to Beijing for training. She's mm. been to Jinan training. She's created businesses for the local women mm. and been careful to do it in a way that fits with the culture. It's not a, a revolution, for right. example. She's created home industries in things like embroidery mm-hmm. so that the women can own, so they can earn their own living, mm. but without necessarily overthrowing the entire yet, society. Not taking them out into factories and things like that. Mm. Although there are also these things are also are also mm. starting to grow. But in term but in terms of change of mindset, she, that individual person, was a perfect embodiment. Because mm. it would be hard to imagine her life and her fellow villagers' lives 10 years ago and look at it today and see the total transformation. She had discovered qualities in herself that she couldn't have even imagined that she had. You know, I really want to continue talking about this topic. Maybe we could have you on in a few months. But I also want to talk about your book, Building a Green Beijing, Mm -hmm. and about the ideas about um, protecting the environment here in China. Could you, so you're specifically focused on the Beijing area when you're talking about environmentalism. Could you give us one or two examples of what China has done to improve uh, the outcome for the environment here? Yeah, Um, I wrote the Building a Green Beijing book back in 2014. 
15, I think. And I would be interested in trying to do an update mm. of that because a lot of things have happened since then. But uh, the environment is one of the Western critics' favourite targets when they're mm -hmm. criticising China. Um, there was a BBC, this BBC guy, James Reynolds, used to go on and on and on about smog in Beijing. It was like any day there was a smoggy day in Beijing. It was like his favourite day ever. It's the, it's CNN did that a lot, I remember yeah. also. Yeah. Even back then, both Beijing and the state were doing a lot about the environment. Mm -hmm. One of the most important things they did was to create complete comprehensive system of air quality measurement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Put into place almost 40 stations around Beijing, which were measuring air quality mm. across a range of indicators yeah. on an hourly basis. And you could sign up on a mobile app and you could I get I use it. this service. Well, a lot of people do. Why is that so important? Mm -hmm. Because scientists and business people know if you want a metric to change, the first thing to do is start have a measuring it. <laughs> yeah. First thing to do is start measuring it. Mm -hmm. And there is a logic to that, mm -hmm. which specifically applies to the air quality measurement in Beijing. Mm. When people start looking at it, they first look at it passively, mm. but then they start to look at it actively. Yeah. They're looking at the air quality measurement and they come to a realisation mm. that there are actually things that they can do as individuals to change it. To change it. Mm. So just providing that comprehensive system, which is far better than you find, I think, anywhere else mm. in, uh, in the developed world. Just creating that comprehensive measurement system, that reliable system that's giving you hourly update, that in itself, a big, big change. Mm. Beijing has done a huge amount in terms of its urban transport infrastructure. Mm. When I first came to Beijing in 2008, mm -hmm. there were three subway lines. Mm. Line one Hard that to goes across the city, line two that goes round the second ring, and there was a loop called line 13 up at the north. I don't know why they built that one particularly, but these were the three. In 2008, they built a small branch of Line 8 to service the Olympic Park. Mm. But now, you look at Beijing. It's I, like 40 lines or something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how many they got. Yeah, something yeah. Like, between the actual subway and the urban fast rail attached to the subway, right. they must have 40 lines, hundreds of stations, mm. and you can get around so easily. Mm. One of the other things they did in terms of air quality mm -hmm. was they changed the main power stations from burning raw coal mm -hmm. to burning gasified coal. Mm. That's made a huge difference both in Beijing. I mean, obviously, no fossil fuel is completely clean. Right. But you can have cleaner. fuels that are much, much cleaner. Yeah. They used to burn raw coal. They used to truck the raw coal from Inner Mongolia, mostly, maybe Shanxi as well. So they used to be trucking it in trucks and diesel trains. Mm -hmm. Now it's piped. It's bits. Gasified, it's gasified in Suti right. and it's piped to, to Beijing. Wow. So that's made a huge difference mm. in terms of quality of air. They did a lot of work on greening the city. Mm -hmm. And what they did was quite clever. Any little space that for whatever reason couldn't be used for other purposes, for mm. example, the middle of a roundabout, yeah. they had a specific campaign to identify these spaces and to green them. Mm. Just plant stuff. Yeah. Plant stuff. Plant, plant, plant trees. Flowers, trees, And that's bushes. made a big, big difference too. But I was going to talk about the, the uh, power station mm -hmm. aspect because that is specifically interesting. One of the th one of the tropes that I'm sure that you have heard, one of the West's favourite criticisms of China, they open a new coal-fired power station every week. 
I've heard things like that. Yeah. 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 And this is true. But what nobody ever bothers to do is understand why. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what you asked me earlier about changes in Jilin. Mm-hmm. Jilin is very cold up in the north. Yeah. And you have heat. You have to have heating in the winter. Mm. Otherwise, people are going to die. die. Yeah. And most of the heat, in fact, pretty much all of the urban heat is provided by communally produced Hot water. Mm-hmm. They have a, 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 a right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have I'm a sure. power, yeah, the they have a power station. Wind. It heats water, and then it's pumped round uh, an area or a, an apartment complex, or yeah. even um, an apartment block. When I first went to Jilin, there were hundreds of these power stations dotted all over the city. Mm. Some were big and some were small, and some were old and some were new. Some were efficient and some were inefficient, and some were clean and some were filthy. Mm. And there was actually one just opposite our apartment block. Mm-hmm. Um, and the day the heating started, all of a sudden, the sky was just filled with smoke. Mm. There was this acrid smell, which I remember from my boyhood when homes in Scotland and villages were heated with open coal fires. Mm. And that smoke stayed for the whole winter. Mm. And what they've done progressively in Zealine since then, they've built two or maybe three central power stations. Mm-hmm. And they now produce all of the communal heating for the whole city. Mm-hmm. And they've decommissioned every single one of these dirty little inefficient thermal stations. Which really so when you read well, when you read in the Western media, China opens a new coal-fired power station yeah. every week as if it was stupid Chinese and their dirty, ignorant ideas and they don't mm-hmm. care about them. That is what they're doing. They're replacing old they're replacing inefficient old, facilities. And, and that is across the whole of northern urban China. Mm. Dozens of cities, hundreds of towns. Here in Beijing, I remember moving into a community that had one of these, the remnants, you know, one of these huge stacks in the sky. And I was yeah. like, why has smoke never come out of this? And yeah. they're like, oh, they don't use it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh. Well, I'm sure it would have been uh, the same in Beijing. But in Zilin, it was specifically worse because mm. the winter lasts longer. It's much colder. It's much colder, there, yeah. and there wasn't the, the, and there wasn't the same quality of infrastructure. Mm. Some of these things were just a tiny little thing, probably supplying a few offices and shops and smoke belching out the chimney, and that is completely gone. Mm. Now, when you go up to Tilling in the winter, the day the heating goes on, the skies are blue. Mm. The smog has gone, so that is why they are opening a new coal-fired power station every week. Relating to Beijing. They're updating infrastructure. They're updating infrastructure. They're providing cleaner Mm. uh, heating. They're providing cleaner power. You're listening to The Bridge. Um, What other examples from the Beijing area can you give us? Uh, Well, I talked about the... um, I talked about the urban mm-hmm. tra- transport infrastructure. Yeah. And I think related to that also is the broader national transport infrastructure. I think Beijing is a central hub, obviously. Yeah. And the high-speed rail service yeah. from Beijing now goes pretty much everywhere. everywhere. When I first travelled to Jilin, from between Jilin and Beijing, mm-hmm. it was a slow train, an overnight train. I've never taken one of those. Never I've taken always one. wanted well, to. They I, have the private cabins now. Yeah, that's right. Well, I actually, I liked them because we, when we were travelling, it was always the holidays. Yeah. The train was packed. Full of excited people, yeah. Home for the holidays, um, and we always used to have one of these sleepers. Mm. They're cramped, but they are warm and clean 
and comfortable. Mm. And it was always fun because you made friends with whoever you were traveling with and you played mahjong or poker <laughs> or drank baijiu or beer or I'm sure snacks. lots of our Chinese listeners are like, oh, I remember the days. Yeah, well, I used to really enjoy that. And in fact, I traveled to Nanjing. Mm. I traveled to Nanjing just last week. Mm -hmm. And I had to travel overnight. Mm. So I traveled on one of the overnight sleepers. So these older trains, are how, how were they fueled? Well, I guess it would have been, I'm not very sure, diesel or electric. Mm. But I'm, I, I assume that now they're, uh, all, they're, electric, they're, all, yeah. they're all electric. They're all electric. So high-speed rail, 100% is electric now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And China also has the most solar, the most wind, the most hydropower of any nation yeah. in the world. And a massive afforestation program. You want to talk about the afforestation program? Well, it's interesting because one of the differences that I do see in Beijing compared mm -hmm. with when I first arrived is the sandstorms. Mm -hmm. Sandstorms used to be a regular occurrence mm. in the spring, and you used to probably have four or five. Wow. Um, now we had one just yeah, a couple yeah. of weeks ago. I, I was in Senya. It's a, oh, you were in Senya. <laughs> yeah, right so you didn't right see it, oh, so you missed it. it. Well, they're actually a rare occurrence now. Mm. And people often don't realize that Beijing is not far from the Gobai Desert. That's it's right. only a couple of yeah. hundred kilometers over the Beijing hills and mm. into the Gobai Desert. Yeah. So these sandstorms used to be a regular feature of the spring in Beijing. Mm. And now they're actually quite rare. You go through a season and you don't have any at all. Mm. And we had one, unusually, just a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. But that comes down to the afforestation work and the mm. de-desertification work that's being done around the, the desert. Where they're shrinking the desert they're by greening the, the, desert. the edges. Yeah, they're shrinking the desert by greening the edges. They're also re-greening the mountains. Mm. If you go up to outside Beijing, if you hike outside Beijing mm -hmm. in the hills, you'll often see very extensive new tree plantations. You're listening to The Bridge. So in your in your personal experience a week or two ago, mm -hmm. ambassadors from other countries are coming to China to places that were previously impoverished to see the strategies that they've used so that they could bring those strategies to see home. them working. To wow, see them working. That's very um, impressive. Building on from that, mm. developing countries, countries like China, poverty tends to be a rural phenomenon. Mm. And it's mm. related. So it tends to be concentrated mm. in particular areas. Mm -hmm. Poverty in Western development and developed countries is more of an urban phenomenon. Mm. And mm. it's more to do with individual problems, mm. uh, a lot related to social breakdown, often mm -hmm. related to alcoholism, mm. family breakup through divorce, um, that kind of thing, addictions, yeah. uh, ex-service people who can't readjust to, to, mm -hmm. uh, to normal life. But it's more of an urban phenomenon and it's more of an individual phenomenon. Mm. So in that sense, you would look at China's model and you would say the poverty alleviation model mm -hmm. isn't exportable. Mm. That, that is true to a certain extent, Jason, but I think the point they miss is they're not, they're not listening. Their ears are not open. Yeah. Because if they looked at China from a broader perspective, what they would see is social models in China that work. What about the, okay, I, I'm just curious your opinion. You don't have to be right or anything. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the construction of villages in Yangudui, yes. and you mentioned another locality mm -hmm. also. There are 580,000 homeless people in the United States. And certainly you're right about some of the reasons are drug abuse, alcoholism, yeah. you know, um, mental disorders that require serious treatment. But perhaps the building of homes 
for free by the government could be part of that solution. What do you think? It would be part of the solution, Jason, but it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, mm. that poverty is more than material mm. poverty. Mm. Um, and I think the problem there, which I was alluding to, is the social breakdown in the West. Mm. Social systems are weak. Society is effectively broken. I mean, you'll know mm. yourself, being American, you're on Twitter, endless videos mm. of just distress and stuff that's mm, going on mm -hmm. in the US. It's like it's a broken society. Mm. And I think what the West could maybe learn from China, rather than learning about material poverty and education yeah. methods, is understanding why their society is broken mm. and working out how to repair it, how to make it better. Then, if you can do that, then and only then is it going to work by help us uh, by alleviating the material aspect. So people who are stuck in the mentality that there's no way out yes. need to be given the hope that yeah. they can improve their yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah. Need, and that's a part of it. Yes. They need part to be it. given a belief in themselves. They need to see prospects of a better future. And I think a lot of the people at the lowest end of the social scale in, in the West, they don't see that. Mm. They cannot see prospects of a better future. They're lost. Well, I want to talk a little bit about you at the end here. Mm -hmm. So you have published, if I'm not mistaken, 19 books. So Maybe 20. You're a very busy, uh, prolific person, writer, uh, mm -hmm. speaker. What's uh, coming up in your schedule? What, what kind of, uh, what's your next book going to be about? Well, I'm, uh, I'm always busy. I've got a job. <laughs> I've got a full-time job. Yeah, yeah. But uh, of course, I do like to, I like to write and I like to lecture. But I don't have anything specific in the way of writing planned. Mm. I actually, I prepared a book last year, which hasn't been published yet mm -hmm. and probably needs to be updated now. Mm. Uh, but that is in the pipeline. And that is more about how the Western media and politicians demonize China. I, I'm so very interested about, to read that. It talks about my experiences going all the way back to Tibet. Mm. But that Tibetan thing was one, the first, the first step I became aware of in mm -hmm. a long ongoing process of demonizing of China. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've got time to talk about that today, but possibly we could talk about that at some point in the future. Oh, we would love to have but you back yeah, on. Yes, certainly. Every, every major anti-China story that I've encountered in the West, mm -hmm. as soon as you start to dig down, it starts to fall to pieces. Yeah, I the found Xinjiang, the same thing. The Xinjiang yeah. genocide mm -hmm. thing is a perfect example. Mm. Ask any Western person, what is the single most compelling piece of evidence that you have seen mm. that convinces you that the Xinjiang story is real. Mm -hmm. And there are two possibilities. One, they've never seen any compelling piece of evidence. All they've ever seen is lurid headlines and expressions of outrage, and they've internalised the message. Mm -hmm. Or two, they've actually gone and looked for evidence, and the stuff that they have is just rubbish. Mm -hmm. So I have that book in the pipeline. I'm, I'm but, eager uh, to see that. Well, yeah, uh, I'd, I'd be very happy to come and talk about that in, in more detail. It's a fascinating subject. When it comes out, I'm sure you're going to have a book release. I hope so. Yes. We, we'd love to come. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, you'll be invited. But I do have I do have a couple of other things. Absolutely. In please, the pipeline. please tell us. Um, I think you know that some of my books were illustrated children's books. Yes. I actually um, that is a that's a long story which we don't have time to well, go into. Well, you want sure. do you want to tell the one minute version? Okay, I'll try and tell the one minute <laughs> version. I've got older kids. Yeah. One of my kids uh. was the worst eater you've ever met yeah. and he was around five or six when kids mm. start to become problems. I made up a story for him mm. called Space Station Calder. 
mm. in which he was a space station and his food <laughs> was all little space creatures flying round and round and going into the space station. And it worked reasonably well. The docking port. Yeah, exactly. So fast forward 20 years, I've got another kid. Yeah. Now he's five or six and he won't eat anything mm. either. And he's even worse than Calder. Mm. So I started telling him the story of Space Station Calder. And one day I thought, I'll do some drawings and just write the story. So I did that and I looked at these drawings and I thought, these are actually quite good. <laughs> I had absolutely no vision of myself as an artist, but I looked at them and these are actually quite good. Mm. And the one minute version, eventually four books were published. Wow, that's, Space that's remarkable. But what I want to do now is I want to try to revive these books and turn them into something a bit more. Mm. And I want to do that as part of a, a charity operation. Wow. So that's one of my big projects. Other of my big projects is to take my English language training books mm. and to go online with them because they could reach a much bigger audience. And yeah. They, they are, they're good books. I know they're good books. Uh, people regularly tell me, people come up to me at events like the TAC conference mm. yesterday and say, oh, Mr. Ferguson, I'm a big fan of yours. Can you sign the book and can I take a picture? So I know they're good books and they could spread to a much wider audience. Mm. And I have one other project, which I have been trying to do for nearly 10 years now. Wow. It's an idea. I came across a story when I was researching the book on Jiangsu. Mm -hmm. A true story of a huge flood that took place in 1931, which was possibly the worst natural disaster that ever struck humanity. Wow. But not particularly well documented because China was in such a state of chaos at the time. You had Chiang mm. Kai-shek and the warlords, you had trouble with Russia, you had trouble with Japan, mm. trouble in Tibet. So it's not particularly well documented. But there was this terrible flood in Jiangsu that killed millions of people. It destroyed the levees of the Grand Canal. Mm. And this whole lake poured out onto East Jiangsu. Mm. And what happened was an American missionary got together with a Chinese engineer and they decided they were going to rebuild the levees of the canal. And the missionary raised the money and the general planned the works and they succeeded in this project. And it's a fantastic story that involves all sorts of interesting historical figures like Charles Lindeberg. Mm. So Sounds it, like a movie to me. Exactly. Well, yeah. that's what I thought. Oh. That's what I thought. So I've actually been working on writing out the story. As a script. As a script. Wow, that's for, fantastic. For a movie. And it's a big job and I keep putting it away and then taking it okay, out With your game. network and connections, you, should, well, you might be able to get that made. I would hope so. And the thing about it, Jason, the reason I think it's so important it's because it's a story of how ordinary Americans and Chinese work together. Worked together. Oh, I love that. That's exactly what yeah. we are about here at The Bridge. Yeah. yeah. yeah building bridges. Thank so, you for that. So that's my, these are my three projects. Well, the movie idea. You know, anything we can one. do to help you along, let us know. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your time. 